Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this week I have a very special guest on the show. My guest this week is a former RAF military policeman and Metropolitan Police Officer. After leaving the Met in 2015, after 25 years of service, my guest turned his hand to writing crime and thriller novels whilst also working as a broadcaster and commentator on true crime documentaries. His latest thriller, The Blood Tide, is out today. Please welcome to the show, Neil Lancaster. Welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Now, you actually came to my attention through your publisher, and then I got sent your first Max Craigie book, crime thriller dead man's grave admittedly i'm such a slow reader neil i've just about finished it i'll even show you this i mean people at home won't be out here look i've actually even got the grave oh wow (laughs) they've even got this mocked up grave that they made to have in shops and things that's quite cool i do love the covers on these for anyone who is listening because this is audio only the cover is sort of a well it's a graveyard it's got some beautiful countryside in the background with the hills it's very scottish highlands isn't it which is where it's set So, I mean, let's start at the beginning of your career then, I suppose. So I read on your website that you started in the RAF. How did things progress from being a youngster at school towards serving in the, essentially, the armed forces? Well, yeah. I mean, I grew up in um, in Kent, um, in a place called Seven Oaks, which is like a typical, you know, commuter belt town. Um, it's quite a wealthy area, although, you know, I lived on a council estate. So at that time, there wasn't really any work. There's quite a lot of unemployment in the, that time in the 80s, 1983. So I went to the military because that was, you know, kids from council houses, that's the sort of thing they did. So I joined the Air Force and went into the military police. Basically, it had been sold to me by my dad that that was a good career. His dad had been a cop for a long time, but we didn't, you know, I was a bit young then. I was only 17. So I joined the RAF police. And then after all the training, I served, where did I serve? Um, I served in the UK, across the UK. I'd spent three years in Germany, um, some time in the Falkland Islands, Cyprus, and then finished off with some time in London. And then I left in 1990. And from there, I joined the Met Police. And it is a big change because despite the fact it says military police, there's not a lot of policing involved um, in the military police. I was a dog handler and I used to walk around with a big snarling Alsatian. (laughs) around like nuclear war- nuclear weapon sites in the days when we had nukes in the RAF. So that, that was my time in the military. It was all right. It was good fun. We still had the Cold War on then. So it was very different than the military like it is today. My son is a Royal Marine commando. Oh, and wow. uh, he's had a very different experience of being in the military to me because he's been, you know, mul- multiple tours of Afghanistan, Iraq. He's literally just got back from Poland and the- on the Ukraine border as well. So, oh, wow. you know, a much fuller life really i walked around with my dog and watched videos <laughs> there wasn't much else to it 
How do you get into that specific side of it with dog handling? Is that something, do you have a passion for animals? Yeah, I don't know. I can't really remember my logic. I mean, I'd never had a dog as a kid. It just, because otherwise, this is going to sound really, really a ridiculous reason for getting into it. Because back in those days, a big part of the RAF police's job was to guard the nuclear sites because you had these big silos that were full of nukes that used to go on the planes, but then they they got rid of them. And, they, you know, obviously nukes are just on subs now. And it was incredibly boring because you'd just be responsible for a length of, like, wire fencing or you'd be up at an observation tower just watching. But at least I thought, well, at least you've got a dog. It's a bit of, you know, you've got something to do and you can mess about with your dog. And obviously there was the whole thing about training your dogs to go and bite people and all that. And uh, I did that and it was a lot of fun. Actually working with the dogs and training the dogs, I absolutely adored. So, uh, yeah, that was another course you had to do. I mean, you did your your basic RAF police course, which was however long it was. And then after that, there's another course. It was a six-week course, as I recall, where you get teamed up with a dog and you train the dog to bite people, basically. And um, that was right. I I did enjoy that. But I always knew, because I I was married by this time and I had a family, and the military's terrible for sending you off and you know separating families so i decided that i wanted to join the met which had sort of always been where i saw myself going anyway was going into the civil police just because it struck me as a really good career you know um sensible decent career but you know also i i just i think maybe the the genetics from my granddad and things like that i really wanted to lock up bad guys I always say that if I say that's my that was always my motivation for being a cop was I wanted to lock up bad guys, you know, and get get them off the streets. People who do bad stuff. That sounds really basic, but that's to me the driving motivation was to take bad guys out and lock them up. Do you think that's still something that's prevalent in modern day sort of people that enter the police for the first time? Do you think that's still their goal, or do you think a lot of it is for? clout i don't know i i th- i hope so i hope so because i i still question if that's not what you want to do yeah of course you want to help people you want to support the public you want to be the good guy you should do this is all the thing you should be the good guy i always say that we should be if it was a western movie a cop should be the one who wants to wear the white hat and have the sheriff's badge and I always came up with the idea is that if we lock up the bad guys the really bad guys are your burglars your robbers you do make the streets safer because if they're not, if they're locked away, they're not out there doing the bad stuff. I mean, there's a lot of other things around socioeconomic and people steal because they're poor or people break in because of, you know, to houses because of drug addiction. But a lot of that's not within the police's gift to tackle, you know, police can't tackle poverty, Mm. but you can only tackle what's in front of you. And my view is that I can help people not get burgled if I lock up prolific burglars because they're inside they can't carry on burgling now they will get out and they'll get back on that treadmill many of them but it's almost like respite you could you could see it if you were working in an area with a very high burglary rate very often it'd be a small amount a handful of offenders that would make that area have such a high burglary rate because they'd be you know committing multiple burglaries a day generally to fund drug habits so that led to that. And then, you know, I, I think that was still my motivation for wanting to join. I'm, I'm, is it so strong now or do people view it differently? I think the answer is I don't know. I think some will, some might have different ideas, you know, about trying to 
help change society, but I don't think that's really within the police's gift to do. So I keep it down to the, the basics. I wanted to lock up bad guys. And so how does it work when you enter the police? What rank do you enter at first? Back then, everybody joined up as a, a constable, as a police constable, PC. Mm-hmm. And you do your training. Now, it varies. The training's changed out of all recognition. When I joined, it was a 20-week residential course at Hendon. Hendon Police College, which is in North London. Most of it's been sold off now. And that was a pretty tough residential course, you know, with you do all your obvious things like lots and lots of book learning to learn the laws, learn the procedures, lots of role playing. And then obviously work in the gym around arrest and restraint techniques and fitness and things like that. But it was all right. It was a good course. I enjoyed it. And after that, you come out and you go on the streets as a police constable. And so that was then in those days, you'd go on what was called a relief in those days. It was known as a relief, not a shift or a team or anything like that. And you'd be the ones out there in uniform, in the police cars or out walking the streets, interacting with the public, trying to see if you could proactively see crimes happening, stop crimes happening. Or you're out there answering the calls. So the 999 calls or the, you know, the routine calls for burglaries, robberies, domestic disputes, all the whatever comes through the door, you join, you know, the the guys who joined up as police constables would be doing that. So I did that and you have to do that for at least two years, which is still very much, pretty much the same. Recently, they have introduced direct entry. Uh, It is possible to join straight up as an inspector. It's, It's not very common. It's still not common. Or to join up straight away as a superintendent. Now, that's not popular. It's not popular at all because the general feeling on the ground floor in the police is that these are people who are not doing the groundwork first. So, you you know, you've not done the job and you're then thinking you can go and lead people who are doing the job. So it doesn't sit right with a lot of people. That's not to say that some people will do it and will flourish and will eventually, you know, become effective, but it isn't particularly popular and it doesn't sit well with me but that's just a personal opinion. It is also popular now to go in, not popular, but possible to go in as a direct entry detective. Now it used to be, again, you'd have to do your two years in probation. You could then apply to go on the detective training program. And then that could take, could take a couple of years to become a detective because you'd, you'd have to do um, an accreditation process. So you make sure you're hitting all the targets so around interviews, searches, proactive policing, intelligence, all that sort of thing. Um, there'd generally be an exam and an interview board, and then you'd go and do your your detective training course, which was a, a six-week training course, where they really, you know, threw an awful lot of work at you in terms of application and knowledge of the law. So that's the sort of the, the entry routes now. Um, but it was different when I joined up, and up until not that long ago, if you wanted to be a cop, you started off, on the ground floor as a PC and you had to do two years in uniform before you could do anything else. But I say there are some moves afoot to change it. Can you remember what it was like the first day you stepped out of the station, fully dressed, ready to go? I was really excited because you you would work to start with. I mean, you do what they call a street duties course. So you'd finish your training, you'd get assigned to police station. I went to Harleston police station, which is a borough of um, part of Brent, in the northwest of London. 
And you'd go on a street duties course where you, they used to call them puppy walkers. So you'd go out with an experienced constable and they would gradually introduce you to try and get you to experience as much things as possible. So there'd be, you know, there'd be boxes that you want ticking. You want to get your first prisoner and they'd always want you to deal with your first dead body as soon as possible. Because, you know, as a cop, you see a lot of bad stuff. You see a lot of dead bodies. You see a lot of people very badly injured or shot, stabbed. So best to get used to it early, best to be exposed to that sort of thing first, just to make sure that you can handle it. Because you do say, I mean, you know, people are dying all the time in the country. Every single day, multiple people die, mostly obviously just by natural causes or medical, medical emergencies or accidents or, you know, industrial accidents, car accidents, all that sort of thing. And of course, police have to go and deal with that. If someone dies, unless they're very, you know, basically, unless they're dying in hospital or dying at home with doctors in attendance, the police are going to go. So, I mean, I think I saw my first dead body within two days of going on the streets. Really? Yeah. It's just that because people are dying all the time. So, you know, you it, the, the, the typical situation is there's, you get a phone call. We've not seen Mr. Smith who lives next door and there's a funny smell. And you go there and the, you have to push, you know, obviously the door will go in, break entry. And, you know, there was a, I think with me, it was a guy, he was a guy who died in his armchair. He was an old guy. But it, that was my first sight of a dead body. So mm. it is something to go and think, well, how do I feel about that? And maybe if you, you know, but it was, it was, I saw many more over the years. So do you think it's better to be eased in with an elderly gent in an armchair rather than a gruesome murder? Probably, probably, but you know, within very quickly after. I mean, I see, I've seen some that live with me to this day. There are some of the the deaths I went to that live live with me to this day. Some I've completely forgotten about. And what's strange about it is that it's not always the gruesome ones that stick. There was there was one guy. Um, I'll tell you a story about. Uh, this is a long time ago, but we we got a call from uh, a guy. Because I'd been out drinking with my mate last night, and we got really badly, badly, badly drunk. We like they were downing loads of whiskey and everything. He goes, and I can't get hold of him. I can't get hold of him, but I know he's in the house, but I can't get hold of him. And we went through the door, and he was only a young lad. He was in his tw- early twenties, and he just drunk himself to death. Wow! And he was, you know, trigger warning for anybody here, but he vomited copiously in the bed. And he'd sort of slept in the typical sort of Superman position. And obviously you do it. You have to make sure there's no suspicious circumstances. So you're looking at the window locks. You're looking at the door locks. You're looking at all the circumstances around it. And we were, I was happy, you know, content that this guy just drunk himself to death. And when you then, you know, obviously you get the doctor around to certify death. Paramedics can do that nowadays. Most paramedics can do that nowadays. And you then call the coroner's officer and they say, great, right, we'll call an undertaker. So they called the undertaker. But then when we picked him up to get him in the, the body bag, he'd, he'd gone into rigor mortis. So he was in this still and we couldn't move him from this position. And yet it wasn't, a, this wasn't a horrific one. I saw some that were, you know, people have been dead for three months or six months, you know, children. But that's one that sticks in my mind. So I always find that quite curious. And I was talking to... I was talking to the guy I went to that case with not that long ago. And he said, so that's the one you remember from that time. And I went, yeah, it really stuck with me. He goes, did you not remember that two nights later we went to a job with a bloke with an axe in his head? And I'd forgotten about that. 
but I had because you do you know you forget most stuff. But yeah. I hadn't forgotten that one, so I always find that quite curious. What's your approach to actually dealing with things like that? Because it must be difficult seeing a variety of deaths and whether it's murder or suicide or an accidental thing, old age even. Yeah. What's your, what's your coping mechanism for that? Well, with some of them, it's the nat- most cases you deal with, it's almost the natural order of things because it's generally an elderly person or someone who's been unwell. And you can sort of, that's quite easy. It's, it's where it seems really senseless or again you know there's lots of stories i can tell i struggle to tell this one but it's true it was christmas in 1997 i was just gone into being a detective and i was on duty and literally christmas eve i've got my own family waiting for me we were literally thinking about going home and then the phone goes so we got cop death wow north north end of the borough and so i go to this cop death and we go in, and a good friend of mine was the uniform officer on scene. And she came out, and I could tell because she was hard as nails. You know, she was a real good cop and really tough cookie. And I could just tell that this was not good. So we went in, and the doctor came. And the doctor said, I'm not totally happy with the hypostasis in the face. Now, people may or may not know, but hypostasis, obviously, when you're alive, your blood is being pumped around your body. When your heart stops, blood settles. And obviously that forms discoloration and mottling effect on where the blood settles to. And he wasn't happy with the mottling on the child's face. So he goes, I'm not saying it's suspicious. He goes, I'd I'd like to have these questions answered. So I think we need to tread carefully. So it's the usual thing. It was really heartbreaking because this is an 18 month old child, you know, and I said, fuck for myself. So we called the coroner's officer and coroner's officer says, right, the coroner who's responsible for deaths in England and Wales said, I want a special post-mortem and I want it immediately because it's Christmas Eve. Now, there's two types of post-mortem. You've got standard post-mortem where someone's died, not in any suspicious circumstances. You know, most time, a lot of the time, you don't need a post-mortem because if someone's seen a doctor for a terminal condition within a week, they don't generally need a post-mortem. But if someone dies unexpectedly but not suspicious, there'll be a post-mortem. But it won't be a special post-mortem. So it'll take longer to get it organised and it's not done to the same standards, whereas a, a special post-mortem is done forensically. So it's thinking that they're looking for evidence. Okay. So that means you need um, at least one police officer present to be there to take any exhibits that are taken from the body. For instance, say, you, you know, for a shooting, you may be, you'll be needed there to get the evidence. You need to witness it being removed from the body so you can give evidence that this bullet was removed from the body. Mm-hmm. Well, they decided we needed a special post-mortem for this child. So, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve, I was at Northwood Park Hospital being a witness to a post-mortem of an 18-month-old child. So I, I've, I haven't got over that and I accept it. I still get very sad about it. And at Christmas, it can reduce me to tears because, but I make my peace with that. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay to be sad by it. And I don't run away from it and I'm happy to talk about it because I think owning a situation like that helps you deal with it. And I won't, I've just accepted that I won't get over it and I make my peace with it that way. And then you, and then, you know, you you get other feelings of guilt because you think, what right have I got to feel bad about this? It's not my child. I've still got my kids. Mm. Uh, So, you know, you just accept, accept your fallibilities. And I think you run away from them and, be afraid of your your own feelings and, and that how sad you are 
and how it's affected you, then I, I think you might make it more difficult for yourself. But that's just me, you know. It, it can it can work differently for other people. How common is it for officers to bundle it down and just suppress feelings like that rather than letting the emotion out? I think things are getting better, but that's not to say that they're anything like where they should be. I mean, you know, we all know we're in a mental health crisis in the UK now, presumably the world, but it's... There is still an element of it being a macho culture, despite the fact that you know a large a large percentage of, of the workforce are women. But it is still, as a species, particularly as men, we don't like to show our emotions. And I was the same then. I, I hid it. I didn't get upset in public. I did it privately. And it's a funny one. And, and you know, the guy I was working with at the time, who was a really sardonic hard-edged old detective really great guy we spoke about it not that long ago he's you know he's well retired now he's living in spain and he said no he thinks about it every day so you know even someone who at the time i thought was stoic and didn't seem affected by it, he was and he still is and i think accepting that is probably the wisest thing to do you know but yes i think that's what works for me what was the outcome of that case it was um it was sudden infant death syndrome. It's just the the pathologist explained that it, it can how the, the hypostasis had happened, and he was completely content that it was just a, a case of cot death, sudden infant death syndrome. Really tragic, really tragic. Do you think part of why it's affected you so much was because in the end, it almost didn't need to be a special postmortem? So in effect, you could have not been there. You didn't really need to be there with there being no suspicions in the end. Yeah, no, 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 not really. I I understood that I needed to be there because you know you can only go with you have to go with the information you have. You have to you have to risk manage these things because the worst case scenario is it's done a week and a half later in a non forensic environment, and they then find out that it could be murder. Well, then you're playing catch up. So I, I understood what why it happened. I don't regret it. I don't I didn't regret seeing it. I don't regret that I feel this way about it. It is what it is. You know, it makes you who you are. Um, and coming through things like this and, le- and learning from things like this, I think, can help you as, and improve you as a person, you know, improve and maybe help with your self-awareness. Absolutely. Just jump back a little bit. So you spent some time in the Falklands. How long were you there? Oh, just four months. Just four months. So this is like 83. Is that when you went there? Because this was after the... No, I, I went oh, later on. Um was it when was it 88 i went to the falcons in in 88 and that was just part of the garrison they're just maintaining a garrison there um, so they built a great big airfield oh i didn't do very much there i watched videos and got cold (laughs) it was was going to ask what it was like in the fallout of the uh no it was skirmish or whatever no life had settled down to just it was just the new normal there you know it was just a garrison town nothing much happened it was yeah all very peaceful and you know very picturesque so you became a detective in 1997 you said so seven years deep in the met what is that the highest rank you achieve what's how does the ranking work in the met yeah well i started off as a pc and then i went onto the detective training program this was all still on brent borough i then qualified through to that in 1999 and then went to islington as a detective constable and there I was just, you know, doing the day-to-day policing. I was on a burglary squad for a while. I was on a robbery squad for a while. Uh, I was on a squad handling informants for a while. 
uh, proactive crime squad there. And from there, after three years, I went to the Homicide Command. I went to what they, in those days was called Specialist Crime Directorate. And we, I was working on the Homicide Task Force. We were a group of detectives. We had a surveillance capacity, so we were all surveillance trained. And our job was to support the murder inquiry teams. So you got your, you've heard of MIT teams. Obviously, you're a murders podcast. You know, you mm-hmm. heard of MIT teams, major inquiry teams with an SIO at the top of it, uh, deputy SIO, and then you'll have your case officers and all that, you know, exhibits officers, all that sort of thing. We were what was known as the proactive task force. We would provide support. We would do manhunts for the uh, teams. Once they'd identified a potential suspect, they'd very often say to us, we can't find him. Can you go and find him? So we would use whatever skills we needed to use in terms of technical skills, uh, using phones to trace people, things like that. And then maybe using surveillance techniques to actually follow associates to see if they would lead us to the, the guy who was wanted for murder. So I did that for about five years working out of Hendon and worked on, yeah, lots and lots of different murders. Um, lots of, it wasn't just that as well. It wasn't just murder. We would do jobs. You'd, for instance, you'd get it, you'd get cases where, somebody who was suspected of a murder but they couldn't prove it against him they couldn't get enough evidence to prove the case against him now that can be all sorts of reasons it can be that you're getting a great deal of intelligence coming in of course intelligence isn't evidence so there'll be lots of intelligence coming in that joe bloggs has committed this murder now you might get that from very very good sources it could be coming from informants it could be coming from technical surveillance but it could be coming from the type of stuff that you cannot use in evidence at court. But you know it's the guy, but you can't prove it. So what they would very often say to us is, we can't get him for this murder, but can you get him for something else? So the basis is, can we take this bloke off the streets? Because someone who's already, say, shot someone, well, the chances are he's going to be willing to shoot someone else. So on the the point of if you take him off the streets for something serious, he's not going to be in a position to shoot anybody and it may well be that you'll you know we were these were gangsters we were going after these were serious criminals these weren't someone who's doing parking tickets or someone who's been doing a bit of shoplifting we were going off people with a likelihood to kill and we would go after them for whatever and it literally would be like what's he up to a lot of the time it was drugs a lot of the time it was serious drugs as we all know a significant amount of murders are motivated motivated by drugs drug turf wars you know all this sort of thing i mean it can be ridiculous things it can be you know the whole thing we hear about disrespect we look there is a you know there is a youth murder crisis in many cities so we would then go after these people for whatever with just the expressive intention of taking them off the streets and we'd use proactive techniques to try and catch them so we'd be bugging houses we'd be bugging cars we would be putting trackers on cars we would be following people all around london with the intention of locking them up for something. We had one case, a guy who was, um, who'd supplied a firearm. Strong intelligence suggested someone had supplied a firearm that was used in a murder. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
got your happy price, price line. We got the guy for the murder, but then we, we wanted to get the guy who supplied the firearm because if he was doing it to him, he's going to do it to other people. Yeah. So we put on a full in the full surveillance operation against him with full intelligence backup and we got we got some information that there was going to be he was going to be doing a major drug deal and we did a hard stop on him and found an awful lot of drugs and some firearms and he went away for a long time so that we viewed as a really good success because there's somebody who's not going to be in a position to sell firearms anymore and all that and then when he comes out of jail very often they've lost their power base it's very hard for them to get going again because they've been replaced that's the type of thing we would do we would also, I mean, obviously your listeners will have heard of the case of Levi Belfield. Mm-hmm. I've covered it, yeah. Of course you have, yeah. Obviously Levi Belfield was under surveillance for the 10 days up to his arrest. So I was part of that operation. I was on that surveillance team for 10 days. We were on Levi Belfield 24 hours a day. We split the team in half, got some extra support, and we would literally take him from the moment he got up in the morning to the moment he went to his bed and then we'd sit outside his house all night and wait for him to get up in the morning and go off doing his thing. He was a wheel clamper and he would go round, sort of all round um, west, south and south, southwest London and into sort of Middlesex. Car clamping, private car clamping. And we, we just followed him round, which is, you know, pretty high pressure, high tension stuff because he was obviously suspected of, well, at the time, two murders and a, an attempted murder with Kate Sheedy. And yeah, we followed him around for 10 days. And then <laughs> I say, if, if people have seen the dramatization with, with Martin Clunes and everyone that have seen this bit, it's absolutely true. We'd been around with him all day. It was really cold. I remember that much. And we'd been behind him all day and he'd been out wheel clamping and doing his thing, getting it scrapes all the time. It was always a worry that he was going to get into a big fight or we're going to have to intervene, but he didn't. And then he went back to his bed. I can't remember what time, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And then the call came in from Colin Sutton, the SIO. We're going in tomorrow morning. We're going to nick him. We've seen enough. And so we did it. We plotted up his house the way you do. <laughs> and uh, in the morning, they go, right, we're going in now. Door, they, knock, they knocked the door. They didn't kick the door in. They knocked the door. They got let in and he wasn't there. <laughs> So the phone goes, we've all, we've all withdrawn and we've gone back to West Strait Police Station. We were all sat around waiting to be released because we've been on all night. And the call comes in, he's not there. <laughs> oh my God, can you imagine, you know, the sort of the sort of worst, London's worst serial killer. And we were thinking, have we lot? And the guy who had eyes on the door for the majority of the night was saying, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. I didn't fall asleep. I didn't, I didn't miss him. I didn't miss him. But it, and he was, it's about 45 minutes later that they found him in the loft. His girlfriend snitched on him and pointed up at the loft. She then became a prosecution witness because, you know, she, he abused her horribly. What a horrible, horrible man. However bad he's portrayed in the shows that he's in, he's worse. He's the worst. A, a classic narcissistic sociopath. Horrendous man. Was he not hiding in the insulation in the loft or something? Yeah, covered yeah in... naked. Yeah. Quite, I must have been sore. Not that I give a monkey. <laughs> yeah, there's no sympathy for the guy. But no, Jesus. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, there you go. And uh, he's away on a whole life tariff now, so he'll never get out. And then, obviously, probably they're looking at him now for um, the other murder, which he's c- confessed to. Now, whether that 
whether that's the case or not, whether he's done it, or is it just his way of keeping himself in the headlines? I don't know enough about it from that side. And they'll look. They'll be looking at it because his his lawyers, or not his lawyers, Stone's lawyers, will Michael Stone's lawyers will be trying to make it as a thing to get him off. But I don't know enough about it to know whether there's. I could make a case for either side, really. What's the budgeting like? Let's say you've got a surveillance case such as that one, a high profile, and you want you want to bug things and get cameras and surveillance. Is there a budget involved, or is it kind of? Do what you want. We'll worry about that later. There's always a budget involved. It, the more serious the case, the less they worry about it. But even in murders, the I mean, you'll see this. We, we you know, there are so many good programs out there now. You know, we talk about 24 hours in police custody. Some of the shows they do on that, where they follow murder teams around. When um, you know, you've got a hot murder, people in custody, and there'll be meetings. It's regular meetings, and one of the people at the meeting will be the forensic manager, so the crime scene manager, and there'll be a forensic manager. And even when they're talking about, they will have to justify every check or test or whatever it is they want doing. So they want to submit, you know, they, for instance, if you go into a place and submit and you take away a hundred fingerprints, you've got to justify which ones you search for because there's a cost involved. If, you know, it's like if you, if you seize a big bag of drugs, you don't test all the drugs. You just test a bit because there's, there's a cost especially with outsourcing now. I mean, everything's outsourced. You used to have the Forensic Science Service, which was a a centre of excellence, you know, world-renowned, and they got rid of it, put it all out to the public sector. So there's a cost, there's an actual cash money dollar cost for anything you do. You Like, for instance, another thing you can do is with phones. Phones form a huge part of murder inquiries. It's always a central part of any murder inquiry is somebody's phone looking at actually what's on the phone, but also the phone traffic. And there's a huge cost involved in these things. I mean, it's it's especially if you need to try and get through the security on the phones, because, I mean, a phone is no longer a phone. I mean, you think, what's the thing you use your phone for the least? It's probably making phone calls, because mm-hmm. we're all constantly on them. But these phones become, they are supercomputers. And so you download an average phone. Now, this is I, just as a uh, as an example, like, yeah, the Towards my end, the end of my time, this is 2015, we downloaded a phone of a corrupt solicitor. It'd been a busy phone. Now, just the WhatsApp messages, there was 100,000 of them. Wow. Now, that sounds a lot, but if I bet if you counted up your own WhatsApp messages, <laughs> you, you, it's a shocking amount. And someone's got to go through those. So there is always budgetary constraints because every time you get a phone interrogated, if you have to send it to a lab, there's a cost involved. So you've got to justify each and every one. Otherwise, they're flooded and the really important ones will get mixed. So, yeah, budgets play an enormous part. Even in big, high-profile murders, you've still got to justify it. And then there will be times when we'll say, we can't justify that. We won't do those particular checks or tests. We won't do those particular bits of forensic examination because it's not likely to work and the cost is too high. So, yeah, definitely. Does that cause any frustrations between sort of higher ups and the people the detectives work in the case if they really think something is worth looking into and the bosses say we're not prepared to do it yeah definitely definitely because if you're if you're the sio on a murder it's the most important murder out there as far as you're concerned because you're the one investigating it so and there's a lot of pressure on a dci who's an sio an awful lot of pressure 
especially if it's a cat a murder and you people know you've got the categories of murder you've got your cat a murder which is basically it's very serious high part public profile and the person's liable to strike again now if you've got a big murder or even a cat b murder so you know nasty and all that sort of thing but a bit more tricky to solve that's the most important thing in the world to you but looking at it from a a force-wide process they only have this particular pot of cash so even though you think your murders are most important other people are probably bidding for those same resources so it has yeah you have it has to be considered and of course if an sio wants all these fingerprint searching or he wants to do uh he wants to sample a load of people for dna he wants to do loads of random screening if you've got a completely unknown suspect, much in the case of the Night Stalker, Delroy Grant. You remember that case as well? Um, another one investigated by Colin Sutton. There comes a point where you have to say that will be too expensive to do and on a risk reward basis. So the risk might, it, you know, what's the chances of it succeeding? If it's fairly slight, do you want to spend hundreds of thousands doing these type of investigations? So there's a constant balancing act. This is not the sort of thing you see, you know, on the TV shows, is it? You know, I, I try and put that in in the books. I try and hint at that where, you know, because you can't you can't make even though I write thrillers. You can't make them, you know, police thrillers. You can't make them too true to life because otherwise be, they'll be boring. But I try and I try and hint at that just to give it the realism, which I think you know people are going to expect from me. It's probably a good little segue to move into your career now as a writer. Is that something you've had a passion for historically? It's, it seems quite a jump to go from, you know, a cop for 25 years straight into a successful crime writer. Well, I tell you, I, I was always a really keen reader. I've always read. And I, as a, a young kid, a sort of 10, 11, 12, I was reading thrillers. I was reading Alastair MacLean thrillers and people like that. Uh, Clive Cussler, all these sort of old thriller writers from the 1970s. And I would read them and love them. Because you know, there wasn't so much to do. There was no Netflix or anything like that. You know, there was only three. There were three channels, and what you know, if there was nothing on you wanted to watch, you were stuffed. So I was always a very keen reader, and that went on. And I always read during my time in the military, and when I was a cop commuting, I'd always have a book on the go. So, and then I, I retired in 2015, and I moved 500 miles north, and now live in the Highlands of Scotland. So I found myself with loads of time on my hands. And I wanted to do something. I did a little bit of private investigations work, but that was just too boring for words, you know. Mm. And I, so I thought, I just, honestly, it wasn't a great deal of thought put into it. I just thought, I wonder if I can write a book. And I had a rough idea about a case I worked. I mentioned it before, a corrupt solicitor who was facilitating sham marriages. If anybody wants to, look it up on YouTube, look out for my big fat fake wedding. It was Slister's firm in East London. Panorama did an expose on him, literally at the time when we were planning our strike on the place. It was Slister's office that would were working with a Czech trafficking gang, a gang of Czech people traffickers who traffic very vulnerable girls over from the Czech Republic or Slovakia. And then would, they would mostly go into prostitution as well. But then they would also, as a little side hustle, they would look to put them into a sham marriage with a non-European to try and get them status in the country. Now, his firm were doing a disproportionate amounts of marriage applications because you have to get you had to get back there and you had to get authority to be allowed to marry if you didn't have status in the UK. And this guy was doing heaps of them. And that struck me as a good 
background for a for a book. So I used that as the sort of backstory to start a book. You know, I changed all the details, didn't base it on him as a character, completely changed everything. And then I just thought, well, that's a good way to start a book about this trafficking gang, because they were horrible. This trafficking gang were really horrible, big, violent, nasty, aggressive gangsters, Czech gangsters. So I thought well, that's a good that's a good thing to look at. So I did it, but I did it from the point of view of, of an undercover police officer going in to try and expose this solicitor, and then making it go completely rogue, off rails, and having this really fast paced thriller. And I just wrote it to see how it would go. I didn't plan it. I didn't write anything down. I just wrote the book, and it took me I don't know six, seven, eight months or something to write. And then I managed to get a publishing deal, and. The, the rest is history. I wrote I wrote two more in that series, which is my first series of books, which is the Novak series. But then I hit um, and I was, they were doing okay. They were they were selling pretty well, but with a with with a very small micro publisher. But they did very well on Amazon and things like that. They sold particularly well there. And I then went and somebody told me a story. An old guy told me a story about a graveyard he visited in the wilds of Scotland, and he found this old creepy graveyard in the middle of nowhere where there was just one slab in the ground and it just said this grave never to be opened. And that just fired my imagination because why? Well, I mean, don't open this grave. Surely that doesn't need to be said, but it (laughs) fired my imagination. So I came up with this new idea for a new book and I wrote this book, which is my, my fourth book, my first in this series called dead man's grave. And I invented a whole new cast of characters and I, I based it on, like an old feud from 1830 that came back to life in the present day. And it's a, a Scottish gangster based story with a cop at the center of it. And um, I managed to get a big publisher of that. I got published by HarperCollins for that, an imprint of HarperCollins called HQ. And that sold really well. And um, it was shortlisted for a Scottish book of the year prize. And uh, it was Waterstones book of the month. And uh, I've just written the follow-up of that, which is out. Um, it's already out in ebook and audio. Uh, it's called The Blood Tide, which is a follow-on, which deals with drug importation and corruption within law enforcement. And uh, that's out in hardback this week on Thursday. And I've written another one, which is coming out called The Night Watch, which is coming out in September, uh, which I'm really excited about. I've just finished write, writing the fourth one. <laughs> I was just going to say, I saw your tweet earlier today that said you've uh, been commissioned for three more, right? In the same, yeah, period. yeah. I've, I've I've been um, I've been commissioned for three more. I've written I've written one of them. I'm just waiting to see what my editor thinks of it, and I'm trying to dream up a new idea for the next one at the moment. So yeah, I've gone from a cop being a cop and being busy as a cop. I'm now busy as a writer. <laughs> you must have a lot of stories though in that brain of yours to tell. Yeah, yeah, I have to dig them out now and again, but they, yeah, it, it does help. It does help. Do you think writing loads of reports throughout your career has helped your writing skills? Yeah, writing skills in terms of being able to formulate a cogent sentence, punctuate it properly, yeah, organize a word document properly, yeah. But of course, I'm having to invent things out of the air. Whereas before I was trying to report facts, much as some people might make accusations of a, uh, to the contrary of that. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I was just being asked to you know, recount facts and put out factual reports, which would go to the Crown Prosecution Service or, you know, whoever. But yeah, I think the ability to 
express myself in writing was useful from all the report writing but the imagination you know you you've just got to have and you you know sometimes it takes a bit of work sometimes inspiration flows really quickly but sometimes you have to dig deep and uh so yeah it's great but again lots of inspiration from my career not just in terms of things that have happened but characters i've met yeah because there are some people if they looked at some of the characters i've invented may recognize aspects of themselves in some of the characters i was going to ask how much of yourself do you see in ds max craig oh nothing nothing (laughs) honestly i've never and the same with novak nothing i'm i'm not like them (laughs) they're much cooler and sort of more competent and braver and all that sort of stuff than me (laughs) Because I know you're looking at the release dates of your books, you you get them out pretty sharpish, don't you? Uh, but at the moment, about every seven months, there's yeah. a new book so far. Um, I mean, I, I first started writing a book in 2018. My first book was released in April 2019. Because it takes quite a while. I mean, you know, writing the book is one thing. You've then got to go through a number of rounds of edits, proofreads. There's got to be a cover design for it. They've then got to do the press and publicity to get it ready to go so people are aware of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of work involved, and it's not just writing the book. You know, you, the book's got to be marketed as well. The book's got to be, you know, you, it's no use just writing a book and hoping people buy it. They've got to be yeah. made aware it exists, which is where things like this are, can be quite helpful. Yeah, I assume you work to specific deadlines with regards to have this many words by this day, start marketing on this day, or do you leave it open? Uh, I, I, I'm not that organised. But I'm fortunate in that I can write fairly quickly. Once once I get the inspiration, it takes me a while to start a book and to get it going and to really get the story going. And if because you know you've got to invent new characters in terms of other people who are going to be in the book, generally the bad guys mm. um, or the victims, things like that. So you'll you know it takes a bit more time to get it going to le- get to know the new characters. But once I get to sort of halfway, then I'm quick. Then I'll write really quickly. So I, I mean I've beaten my deadline by a month on this one which is nice but then obviously then the edits come then you're in the hands of your editor your editor will come and they've got to then read the whole book they've got to edit it they've got to tell it you know they've got to tell you what they think of it where it can be improved because writing a book is a solitary endeavor producing and publishing a book is a team effort because you know you need editors you need all proofreaders you need typesetters you need cover designers so, yeah, I mean, as soon as my edits come back, I get straight on with them and I don't hang around. I'll get them done as quickly as I can. But I don't work to a schedule. I don't have a daily word count title that I have to hit. I just write what I think. At the start, I might only might only manage 1,000 words a day. Towards the end, I might manage 5,000 words a day. So it all depends on where I am in, in the process and in the schedule. How much of the story do you need when you first start? Because I'm presuming that you don't know the ending when you start. I don't want to know the ending. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to know the ending before I start. Um, I'm friends with Ian Rankin. Um, okay. Who's one of the biggest crime writers out there. He lives, mm-hmm. he's got a place not far from me. And he says that if he knew the ending before halfway through or three quarters of the way through the book, he wouldn't want to finish the book. And I took that on board and I thought that's a good plan. So I like not knowing the ending. I like the fact that I can completely change things. I mean, in the blood tide, I was writing it. I was nearly at half halfway through and i just thought what happens if i change what i thought i was going to do and just do this thing quite a dramatic thing i didn't i thought oh, yeah i'll do it and i just did it so the what i'd planned up to that halfway point 
I totally changed, pulled the rug completely out from under my feet, but it made it better. So I have, I have to go with my gut and go with my gut instinct. I think I write by feel rather than write by plan. I don't plan anything. And when I first sit down and start, I probably know the first couple of chapters and I'll know what the theme of the book is. And if I can get to that, and then it, it tends to be, I'll get to the end of that chapter and I, it'll start to, all right, okay, I know what I can do next. I never really know more than three chapters what, what's next. I suppose that's good from a reader's perspective, because if the author doesn't know what's happening halfway through, how the hell am I supposed to know? Well, that's it. I, I mean, because I don't know until, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've literally, who the bad guy was in the book I've just written, I, it could have been one of three people, and it was I tossed a coin basically to decide. <laughs> and then I'll go back and drop a few hints in, or chuck yeah. a bit of a red herring in somewhere else, you know. Because the edits, the editing process is is quite intense, and it can you know because you really are diving down into the book to try and make it as good as it can possibly be, and make sure that you hit the beats, make sure that you keep the tension up, make sure that if you put a twist in, it really lands. So. Yeah, I, I like the, I like the uncertainty, but some sometimes it can be stressful. <laughs> Where does the naming come into it? Naming of the book. That's generally the publisher who does that. Is it? I have I yeah, I do. I I I mean, when I wrote Dead Man's Grave, I called it Blood Feud. Hmm. Which is kind of what it is. I but yeah. when a publisher look at it, they look at it from a marketing perspective. They're looking at what key keywords will come up in terms of um you know, uh, analytics and things like that. So to me, I don't worry about it anymore. I don't even give it in that. I'm the, the latest one I've just sent to my editor hasn't even got a name yet. I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> and they will come up with some, they will brainstorm it. Cause these are, these guys are the experts. They're the ex, they have marketing experts. They have analytic experts. They have people who are used, you know, use keywords so that if your book arrives early in, in searches, that's really important. So I, you know, they, they will always ask my opinion, um, but I, I'm an easy fix on that one. I'm, I'm, I trust the professionals. Definitely. I mean, the covers. I mean, I like I say, I've got Dead Man's Grave here and the Blood Tide. Great covers, bright yellow writing in capitals at the front. I think with the Dead Man's thing, maybe what they're going for. Dead Man's prefixes a lot of things out there. So, like, yeah. there's a f- film called Dead Man's Shoes. There's a rum yeah. called De- Dead Man's Finger. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe yeah, I should be a marketing. <laughs> you know, it's worked because it sold really well. So, and, you know, I'm really proud to have them out there. So, yeah, it's been it's been super fun. It's It's been a real lease of life for me to go from doing what I used to do to doing this and, you know, sitting in my little office and looking out over the hills and dreaming up stories. It's, it's great fun. I mean, I loved being a cop. I loved being a cop, but this is – the thing I enjoy the most that I've done in my life. How does the audiobook stuff come about? Do you get a say in if you want to do it yourself or do you? Oh God, no, 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 not, you could not do. I you could, could do, do, but firstly, <laughs> these are Scottish books and my accents are awful. Yeah. Secondly, the, the people who do this and do them in fiction books are experts, you know, they're actors. Yeah. And mm. uh, Angus King is the, the guy who does Dead Man's Grave and The Blood Tide. And he'll do the others, I hope, anyway. Um, and he's fantastic. He's absolutely fantastic. They can add so much. I mean, if you, I mean, non-fiction books, if you wrote a non-fiction book, I'm fairly confident I would narrate it myself. But um, audio books are huge now. They're hugely popular. 
and they form a big part of sales nowadays. And so, yeah, you need the right person reading them. And um, I've been very, very lucky because Angus is absolutely brilliant. I think you can tell, you mentioned sort of earlier in the chat that you don't want it to be too focused on real life because you think it would be a little bit tedious for the general reader. But I, I think you can tell that all the procedures that you follow and everything to the detail of what happens, you know, when they find a little bit of a spoiler alert for the first book, but when an incident happens at the grave and the forensics guys come round, the procedures they go through, the outfits they have to wear, it's very detailed, I find, and that probably comes from your experience in the police. Yeah, I, you've, you've got to try and find, the, yeah, you want the reader to believe you know what you're talking about. You want the reader to believe it's as authentic as it can be and not to have any big glaring errors because people pick them up. But you need to find a way of doing it that it's not going to get dull. Because, you know, so, for instance, I talk about because things like surveillance, uh, you know, bugging houses, all that sort of stuff, they have to be authorised by a senior police officer. They have to then be very often scrutinised by the surveillance commissioners. And there's a whole process around getting that done. It can take quite a while. There's quite a lot involved in it. But the reader doesn't need to know all that. But what, what is good to drop in is something like just an acknowledgement that these um, authorities have to be um, obtained. And just by getting a one-liner in of dialogue about where the boss says, right, I'll go and sort the authorities out, you lot get on with X, Y, and Z, that gives it its veneer of authenticity without me being boring about, oh, off he went and he got the forms out and he started filling the form and, and he phoned the chief secretary to get an appointment, you know, which is what actually happens. And then you go and do your personal presentation to the chief to go and get this. and blah, 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 blah. But no one wants to read about that. People want to just know. But then I like to let people know that this has happened and I have thought about it mm. because then that gives it its veneer of, of authenticity. But I can then keep the pace up and still make them as fast paced exciting reads which is what i always want to do i always wanted to write page turners you know because that's what i like to read I like i like to read page turners and so it, it, it's important to keep the pace up you mentioned your good friends with ian rankin did you watch the murder island show that he wrote i i watched a fair bit of it yeah i watched a fair bit of it what do you think of these it? are entertainment shows it's much like um yeah. hunt, hunted they're entertainment shows yeah 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 you know they don't reflect real life but yeah, I think that went pretty well. I and mean, he seemed pretty pleased with it. But yeah. you know, he's a master. He's a master craftsman in, <laughs> in terms of writing books. Well, yeah. A nice quote on the front of Dead Man's Grave from Ian Rankin. Grab me from the first page. Helps the sales for you. <laughs> uh it doesn't hurt them. There's no getting away from it. He's a real good guy. He's really supportive of up and coming writers. Really, really supportive. And you know, it's it's, That's a, good it's to hear. a it's a good community. People do give you a lot of support. Good stuff. Right, Neil, I think we've pretty much covered everything there. So, so far in the Max Craigie series, we have Dead Man's Grave out already, The Blood Tide, which is out this week, and the third one, Night Watch. That's right. The Night it? Watch, yeah. That's the Night out Watch. That's out in September. Out in September, and then from next year, three more will be coming out, so keep your eye on those. But I'm going to put a link in the episode description for this one to The Blood Tide, the most recent book in the Max Craigie series. What I like to do, just before we finish, Neil, is I like to ask uh, ask all of my guests three philosophical questions. Okay. So the first one, just answer, you can say I don't know, you can just answer them quickly, There's, just don't think too deeply. Is there a motto or a phrase that you live by day to day? Don't sweat the small stuff. I like it. 
Is there something you know now you wish you'd known at the start of your career? No. I like to make mistakes and learn from them. I do also. Now, if you could go back and change anything, would you change it? And if so, why? No, because I wouldn't be sat here doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. Never regret anything. I regret it. It's all right to regret it and think I shouldn't have done it. But the fact is, I have. I've made loads of mistakes in my life. I haven't always been perfect. And uh, much as I'm ashamed of a couple of things I've done, I wouldn't change it because I've learned from it. So what is it? Nietzsche, wasn't it, said, what doesn't kill me will only make me stronger. I'll take your word on that philosophy. one. No, I'll, yeah. I'll, take, I'll take your He's word on German that He's a German philosopher. He comes up some wonderful things. You should look at that because he also said, he who, should fight, he who fights monsters should take care lest he himself should become a monster. And if ah. you gaze into the abyss, the abyss will soon gaze into you. That was Nietzsche, was it? Okay. That was Nietzsche. A very, very clever German. I, I, do you know what? I don't know much about it. Don't think I know anything about it. I don't know anything <laughs> about it. I just know those quotes because I think they're quite cool. And they do reflect so every cop. Anyone working in that sort of industry should have the one about monsters tattooed on their heads. Because if you keep dealing with the bad stuff, make sure you stay true. You know, Make, make sure you stay on the side of the angels. Perfect. Well, Neil Lancaster, thank you for coming on the show. Anything you'd like to say before we shoot off? No, just thank you, everybody, for listening. No worries. We'll end it there, then. And as I always say on British Murders, cheerio. Cheerio.